Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. This week, we are talking about two very important spring holidays, being Passover and Easter. So, for the most part, we're going to be talking about, you know, we're going to start out with Passover, because it's older, and then we're going to move into how Easter comes about, and what's going on there. Excellent. So, as a quick disclaimer about this episode, we're talking today about the history of Passover and of Easter, both as religious beliefs, as cultural traditions, as observances of important holidays in history. We are not getting into, you know, exact historical accuracy of anything in the Jewish or Christian traditions, because that is for religious scholars and theologians to do. I'm not here to tell you what actually happened in ancient Egypt at X year. Like, that's beyond the scope of this. We're talking about the beliefs that people have and the impact on lives in the past. And currently. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) That's the goal. Yeah, because, I mean, it doesn't, like... No, but so what we're going to be looking at is specifically what it was that early Christians and Jews believed they were celebrating. The history that those people in that specific time, when these traditions were emerging, what they were celebrating. Um, Yeah, and like we're also talking about people celebrating these things today because in both cases these are very alive ongoing traditions that as we'll see in the episode are still evolving but we are not here to you know try to and try to tell you like well actually you know it it, this should have happened on this day or like but you know what was actually happening in jerusalem in the year 30 you know ce and i'm like i I'm not here to talk about that. That's not my wheelhouse. Yeah, we're looking about, like, a thousand years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> at, at least a thousand years later. Uh, let me okay. just start that over. All right, so let's go back. We're going to go way back. We're going to see the origins of Passover. <laughs> we're... <laughs> Get in the time machine, everyone. That was my greatest noise. <laughs> Get your your wah, magic wah, screwdriver, wah. Devin. It's a sonic screwdriver. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've never watched Doctor Who. Like, I don't know. It's not magic. It uses <laughs> sound, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. Sounds like magic to me. <laughs> Anyway, so here we are. It is the 13th century BC in Egypt. Pharaoh is on his throne, ruling his kingdom. 
he has the Israelites enslaved and forces them forces them to work for him. And basically they are made to build all kinds of buildings and do other, you know, hard labor. The pharaoh, however, starts to get a little worried because even though he has them enslaved, he realizes that there are a lot of Israelites in his kingdom and he's worried that they could rise up against him. So he decides that the best way to, you know, cut down the number of people there are would be to murder any male Hebrew children who are born in, like, the next while are all going to be drowned in the River Nile. So the authorities are sent out. They do that. However, there is one person who manages to escape, and that is baby Moses, because his mother takes him and puts him in, like, a little reed basket that's all, you know, covered in tar, I want to say. You know, it's waterproofed somehow, and floats him down 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 the river, hoping that, you know, he's able to be found by someone else and therefore avoid being murdered for being Jewish, basically. And as luck would have it, the basket floats along the River Nile, it gets stuck in some rushes, and the baby Moses is discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter, who sees this as, you know, a sign that she is meant to adopt this child and raise him as her son. And so Moses is raised as an Egyptian. Now, one day, Moses has reached adulthood, and he sees an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew man who was enslaved, and he kills the Egyptian in retaliation. Now, Moses then would have been given the death penalty, so in order to escape, he flees to Midian, which is a desert country south of Judah, um, where he meets up with basically other people who are living in the desert, and he marries a woman named Zipporah. So while they're traveling in the desert on Mount Horeb, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush, and Moses goes over and says, Hi, why is this bush on fire? And God says, Hi, my name is Yahweh, and I'm telling you as the Lord your God to return to Egypt and bring your chosen people his chosen people, God's chosen people, which is Israel, out of bondage and into the promised land, which is Canaan. <laughs> just, all of you, everyone just go watch yeah, Prince of Egypt, so I was honestly. Say that, but a plus also movie. I really like Moses' reaction to seeing a bush on fire being to ask the bush why it's on fire. I mean, you know. <laughs> Yo, dude, what you doing? I'm not supposed to do that. It's God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can I just say, of all the ways It's much that, more mystical you know, in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I would argue not necessarily, because how many times <laughs> in in the Torah is there just like I don't know, there's like an angel appears, but the angel has 17 arms and 15 wings and is also on fire and has a sword and has, you know, an infinite number of eyes. I feel like if I had to pick between the two, I would much rather just see a bush oh, yeah, that keeps no, burning. Not, I'd be like, I'm yeah, that seems fine. I'm not saying anything about <laughs> biblical angels. I'm just like, 
if I was out in the desert and there was like something on fire, I'd be like, I should get away from that thing that's on fire, not go up and be like, Sir, <laughs> what you doing? Well, Margot, that's why you have not been chosen as a prophetess. That's, that's the real not. problem here. That's the only reason. <laughs> yep. Yep. Can confirm. That's why you have not been, in, you know, anointed by oh. God as a prophet. <laughs> so anyway, Moses says, well, God told me to do this, so I gotta go back to Egypt now. So he goes back to Egypt. And he says, hi, Pharaoh, I'm back. I know you wanted me dead, but, you know, God told me that I should come back here and tell you that you really need to let the Israelites go. Like, let my people go. They'll come with me. They're going to leave. And the Pharaoh says, no, absolutely not. I'm not losing my workforce. Um, so then, basically, there are ten plagues that God descends upon Egypt as retribution for the Pharaoh refusing to let the Israelites go. Here are the ten plagues in order. Number one, water turns into blood. Number two, bunch of frogs show up. Number three, lice or gnats, depending on the translation. Number four, there's wild animals and or flies. Basically, very annoying animal <laughs> situations. Number five, pestilence of livestock, so all the livestock die you know die in the field number six everyone gets boils all over themselves number seven there is a thunderstorm that involves hail and fire number eight uh is a plague of locusts and number nine is three days and three nights of total darkness now by this point you know that we've got nine plagues god says okay going to do one last plague uh, I'm going to send the angel of death to go through Egypt and the angel of death is going to go and kill all of the firstborn males of the Egyptians in basically as a direct parallel to the way that the pharaoh was killing the first well not all not the first male child but the way that the pharaoh was killing the sons of the Israelites previously and he tells Moses, okay, tell everyone who is of Israel to sacrifice lambs and then paint the door with blood so that the angel of death knows to pass over them. Hence the name Passover. So the tenth plague happens. The angel of death comes, passes over all of Israel's homes and kills all the male firstborns of the Egyptians. So finally, after this, the Pharaoh says, all right, Fine, go. This is, I'm done. I'm done fighting you on this one. Moses, take your people, leave. So Moses says, great. And he leads the Israelites to the border of Egypt. And he takes his staff and through the power of God, the Red Sea is parted so that there's a path right through the middle and they're able to pass through the sea. But right at the last second, the Pharaoh shows up with all his guys behind him chasing after them because he says, no, I want them to all come back because you know what? Never mind. I've had 10 plagues. I've had warts, boils, days of darkness. All the firstborn sons are dead. There's been raining of hail and fire and locusts and all our animals are dead. But no, this seems like the best course of action right now is I'm going to chase these people down. Chases after them, gets into that water, goes running for them, 
But lo and behold, as soon as the last people step out of, like, as soon as the last people who Moses is leading leaves the Red Sea and has crossed to the other side, God makes the water come back again, thereby drowning all of the Egyptian, you know, soldiers and guards, essentially, who were chasing after them. Again, for further context, see uh, the Bible and or Prince of Egypt. (laughs) Yes, I am literally begging all of you to watch Prince of Egypt because, may I just say, this is so well done. Like, this is, I'm not being paid to say this, but I could be. Yeah. DreamWorks. At, at <laughs> Promote DreamWorks. this movie from Hit 20 years ago. <laughs> we would really like to, to be sponsored exclusively by Prince of Egypt. We'll also take Road to El Dorado, though it's not related to. And Shrek. <laughs> I would like to be officially sponsored Yeah, I mean, I'll, by take, I'll take most of these. <laughs> But I mean, genuinely, when it comes to Prince of Egypt, it is remarkably well done, specifically because they actually spoke to, like, a wide variety of, you know, um, leaders in and and clergy of both, um, like, Jewish and Christian, and I think also um, Muslim clergy, because they basically talk to people from all the Abrahamic religions in order to like be as respectful of a portrayal as was possible and like as accurate and like it's it's very very well done basically great music also uh, can I just say nobody's whitewashed in this film there's no white people which I'm like you know I I don't know I just I think the, the amount of the the amount of whitewashing is and no one's a vegetable of of <laughs> yes this is not Veggie Tales I didn't watch Veggie Tales as a kid um the only like Christiany religiousy movies that I saw was Prince of Egypt Hunchback of Notre Dame I think that's about it <laughs> that one counts. You know. Anyway, so that's how Passover comes to be. Um, and so Passover is the holiday that commemorates the exodus from Egypt into freedom. And Passover was and remains, you know, kind of the most important tradition for the Jewish religion. Or, you know, one of, if not the... I cannot speak to that personally, obviously, but that is what what I have been told. <laughs> so, how is Passover celebrated? So, historically, when the temple in Jerusalem stood, a paschal lamb would be offered and eaten on Passover Eve, and there would be an offering of barley on the second day of the festival. Whereas, nowadays after, you know, the destruction of the temple, in addition to the biblical prohibition of owning leavened foods for the holiday, there is also the Passover Seder meal. 
Um, so a big part of this is when we're talking about leavened foods is basically any kind of, you know, bread or grain product that has been risen, that like rises, right? So like that can be yeast, but it can also be, you know, I guess like baking powder and like baking soda, like anything that isn't like a flat yeah, like no- nothing fluffy, basically. Um, and there are a few different, you know, Where it's fluffy. reasoning beings behind this. Um, on one hand, the Torah says that it's because the Hebrews left Egypt on such short notice and so quickly that there was actually no time to allow baked bread to rise. So they just baked a bunch of flat bread and left, and it's called matzah. And this is... So the bread that's eaten nowadays called matzah is a reminder of this rapid departure. But other scholars teach that at the time when Exodus was being written, that matzah was commonly baked specifically for traveling. So it would be similar to, you know, like a hard tack or, you know, other baked goods that were made to last because it's not going to go bad very easily, basically. And the third explanation is that there was also at least the the kind of the third teaching around this is that unleavened bread has also been historically associated with poverty because you didn't necessarily have the time or the money to be making like leavened or more fluffy loaves and that this is a symbol to, you know, remember humility and appreciate you know the simple things in life and like appreciate that this was what led to freedom basically so there is a whole order for the seder dinner um basically you're going to the table is set with the best china and silverware that you have because it's reflecting, you know, how important this meal is. And during this meal, the story from Exodus is retold using a specific text called the Haggadah. And there are four cups of wine that are consumed at various stages. And there are 15 parts. So the first part is the recital of the Kaddish blessing and the drinking of the first cup of wine. Then there is washing of hands, and then there is a ordered, basically, and then the foods that are on the Seder plate are, you know, consumed basically in a specific order throughout this meal, and the meal ends with a blessing, a drinking the fourth cup of wine, and kind of the concluding conclusion of the ritual. So when looking at what's actually on a Seder plate, the first one is bitter herbs, which are meant to symbolize how bitter and harsh slavery was in Egypt. And this can be anything from, you know, the bottoms of romaine lettuce or uh, horseradish So it's basically just different 
like you know depending on specifically the tradition of that particular region right like because obviously regionally you're going to have access to different foods and then there's caraset which is a sweetened mixture that represents the mortar and bricks that the hebrew slaves made to you know build all these things for egypt and it's usually kind of a brown paste made with you know chopped up nuts and fruits and spices then there's karpas which is a vegetable that's other than the bitter herbs which is representative of hope and renewal and it's dipped into salt water at the beginning of the seder so it's often parsley or another green vegetable there can also be green onion potato Again, to my understanding, it really varies regionally and, you know, with what kind of tradition people are engaging in. And then there is the lamb bone that is on the plate, and this symbolizes the sacrificed lamb, which, you know, the blood of which was painted on the door so that the angel of death would pass over. There's also a roasted egg, which... Um, again, symbolizes the festival sacrifice that would have been offered at the temple in Jerusalem. And it's also a symbol of mourning because traditionally eggs are the first thing served to the attendees of a funeral. So, so it reflects both mourning the loss of that temple and, you know, the, the fact that the sacrifices in the ritual cannot be carried out at the temple because it was destroyed there's also three um three matzah bread which are stacked and separated from each other and there is also a bowl of salt water which is used for dipping food into at different times during the meal there are also some variations that people have added in more modern times, like in the last few decades. So um, some people do include an orange on the plate, and that was um, its representative of including people who have more traditionally been excluded in the community. So it's often seen as a symbol of uh, women's inclusion and of LGBT inclusion, and the orange is supposed to represent the sweetness of having, you know, everyone in the community be welcomed to the table and be welcome to fully participate. And also, some people also include an olive, which is a symbol of a hope for peace um, between Israel and Palestine since the, you know, with the ongoing conflict there. So that's basically the long and the short of it. And now we are about halfway through, so I think it's time to move on to Easter, which, again, one of, if not the most important holiday in the Christian calendar, which also happens around this time. And the reason we're talking about these two together and in order is because Christianity is basically derived from Judaism. The early Christians were... There's, um, so early Christianity was essentially a 
splinter group off of Judaism. So there, you know, it makes sense to talk about them in this sort of parallel way. So again, we're going to have to do like religion speed run, but long story short, God says that he is going to send a Messiah slash savior person for um, his chosen people. And, you know, so one day you have Mary, who is a virgin and who is also free of sin. An angel shows up to her, says, hi, you're going to give birth to the son of God. She says, okay, great, but I'm not married. Can you go explain that to my husband-to-be, Joseph? And the angel says, cool, will do. So yeah, so we had the we had the nativity. Anyway, and that's episodes. the whole Christmas if story. You want to is go when in and have like a biblical scholar explain yeah. the nativity story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's back in January. <laughs> yes, so that's where you can get the real rundown. But then for our purposes, like Mar- thirty ah, odd years I'm playing later, again. Uh, Jesus is running around trying to s- s- stir he up grows stir up. up trouble. Yep, becomes an itinerant preacher, essentially. uh, Be greedy, losers, overturning tables, hitting moneylenders with whips. Yep. He gets 12 main apostles and also just garners, like, a large following just generally. See, you know, I have to feed 5,000 people with a handful of loaves and fishes (laughs) level of celebrity which was like a pretty big level of celebrity at the time you get 5000 people showing up to listen to what you have to say when you're like a homeless carpenter man yeah. wandering around <laughs> with your 12 buds like he also performs a bunch of miracles so he is able to give sight to the blind he's able to heal the sick at one point he brings a man back from the dead he teaches about loving your neighbor caring for and uplifting the poor and marginalized and rails against as Devin, as margot said greed hypocrisy and he injustice does a lot of fishing takes some but naps. as this tends to do this gains <laughs> him some powerful enemies well yeah you know i mean there's only there's only so much so much <laughs> preaching you can do there's only so many times you can yell at rich people to like stop it you know before you're just like all right time for a nap time to roast my disciples like the easter story (laughs) anyway but jesus says yes now we're at the easter i mean i'm blowing through this real quick because i assume that if you're you know listening to this in english you've probably you probably have a general idea of Christianity just from having lived in the Western world, most likely. You know. Anyway, so Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his 12 apostles, and they are specifically going to celebrate Passover. So they show up. He, they go have their Passover dinner. Except when Jesus distributes the bread and wine, he says, this wine is my blood. This bread is my body. One of you is going to betray me here. And all of them go, oh no, like, man, who's going to betray Jesus? <laughs> what a loser. Spoiler alert, it's Judas Iscariot who brings the Romans. <laughs> he brings the Romans to where Jesus 
and the other apostles are. And he kisses Jesus on the cheek so that (laughs) the Romans know which guy they got to arrest. He kisses with a... You could have just pointed at him, him but no. No, this is... You gotta be extra. How poetic. (laughs) Right? Incredible. Right? So then Jesus is arrested by the Roman authorities. Mm -hmm. He's put on trial, he's found guilty, and he's sentenced to be crucified. Side note, which I can't believe we still have to talk about this in the year of our Lord, 2021. But the Jews did not kill Jesus. Literally, the Romans killed Jesus. I... Pontius Pilate decides to kill Jesus. That's it. Yeah, he says the like, oh, I'm gonna wash my hands of this. Nah, you're still the guy in charge. You killed him. The state killed him. Also, in case it needed to be reiterated, yeah, Jesus was Jewish. Mary, Joseph, Jewish. His whole community, Jewish. The apostles, Jewish. Literally all of them. I just, I, I just want to throw that in there because apparently that's a yeah, thing really that sort of like people still think. So, I find it that kind of thinking incongruent with the whole idea of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection being the sign of the second covenant. Like, there had to be a, the the first covenant also for there to be a second one. I, yeah. 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 I mean, we could, I could sit here all day and yell about it and just anti Semitism in Christianity just generally, but I'm like, (laughs) well, I gotta stop it. People, it's time to stop. So, anyway, Jesus, he's arrested. He is beaten, whipped, forced to carry his cross up to Golgotha, and then he is crucified and dies on Friday. This is important. It's Friday, it's day one. He's taken down off the cross, he's wrapped in a shroud, and he's put in a tomb and a large stone is rolled in front of it. And Saturday passes, that is the Sabbath, so nobody can go and, like, anoint him with oils and, like, do all the funeral things, right? You can't right? work on the Sabbath, you can't so push on the Sunday, stone away day, exactly. the Sabbath. Exactly. Can't do, can't do work on the Sabbath. So Sunday, that's day three for those of us keeping count. You get Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and in some tellings, Salome, who bring spices and oils to anoint the body. But when they get there, surprise, the stone has been rolled away. Jesus' body is gone. All of them are like, what are we going to do? Jesus' body is gone. Somebody took it. But then, uh, again, depending on which gospel you're reading, this story changes slightly, but generally an angel shows up at some point and tells them, no, don't worry, Jesus is risen. He rose from the dead. Unlike all that bread. He's fine. He's not- He is risen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. We had to make bread puns Fun if we're talking fact. about Passover and Easter. <laughs> yes. Also, fun fact, this is why- um, Eastern Rite churches to this day don't use, like, the little crackers for communion. They will only use leavened bread because it's risen like Jesus. (laughs) Which, I don't know, I just, I like it. It It makes me happy. Jesus tastier. Some nice symmetry. (laughs) This is very true. Going down. So, I mean, you know, then the, the whole point of this story is that 
Jesus is the son of God. He dies as the perfect mm-hmm. sacrifice, right? Like he's called the lamb of he's God born because sin, he's and then he comes supposed down, to be, he suffers for everybody yes, else's sin he is, and he dies. Yep. And through this process of his blood being spilt, um, God creates a second covenant with all of the people on earth who believe that Jesus came and did this. And yeah, it's the, the second covenant. And then you can all go to heaven. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the whole whole thing is basically, like, again, this is why we're talking about both Passover and Easter. Because Passover, you have mm-hmm. sacrificing a lamb. Here you have sacrificing Son of God. Yep. A lot of sacrifice going on. Now, before we get into how people celebrated this in the past, I'm here to do some bust, myth bust, busting. Bust, 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 Busting those myths. So, number one. This one boils my blood every time. Easter is not named after Ishtar, the Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility, who is a lovely goddess, but has nothing to do with Easter. How do we know this? Because etymologically, Easter is only used in English and Germanic-speaking areas. In most of Europe and the Near East, this holiday is called Pascha or Pasqua or Pasch or some other regional variant, which is words that are derived from the word Passover. Which is it in Hebrew. Yeah. Yes, thank you for... (laughs) Yes, exactly. Because, again, as we're all gonna remember, early Christians were all basically Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? So that's kind of the splinter group. For a long time, there was even debate about whether non-Jewish people could even convert to christianity if they wanted to which i mean obviously they ended up deciding yeah the rest of us are allowed in the club as well but you know so it makes sense that basically these were words that were used um you know that they had already been using and they were basically slight derivatives because these words come from the original people who were jewish and basically founded Christianity. Um, The other variant that we see commonly is in a lot of uh, Eastern Europe, it is literally just called the Great Day, like, or the Big Day. Like, it's Veliki means big, Dane means day. Veliki (laughs) Dane is Easter. Like, that's, again, there is no connection whatsoever to the Assyrian goddess Ishtar, Maybe we'll talk about her another time, because she's real cool, but nothing to do with Easter. So where does the word Easter come from? Well, in the niche areas that actually, like niche languages that actually use the word Easter, which is, remember, Germanic and like basically English-speaking areas, it's, it's up for debate. There was a month, like the month of... April, I believe, in their calendar was called like Estra, Astara, mm-hmm. Estra. You all know <laughs> I can't pronounce anything. And there is one attestation from the Venerable Bede, who's like a big time, full time writer in the Middle Ages. And he's writing in the 8th century and says that this was also the name of a Germanic goddess of spring. 
However, again, by the time he's writing this, it's the 8th century. This is no longer being practiced. So we actually don't know how this was celebrated historically. Like, we can maybe get some clues, but, you know, the link seems to be, we call it Easter because that's the month that it's mostly celebrated in. And there was maybe a goddess named that same thing at some point. Um, other things. This idea that bunnies and the Easter bunny is some, like, ancient fertility symbol or ancient celebration and the Easter bunny is like, no. Again, the earliest evidence we have for anything resembling the Easter bunny is uh, Southwest Germany in 1678, which was recorded by a professor of medicine called George Frank von Frankenau. And it did not even become popular in other parts of Germany until the 18th century. So, again, I mean... <laughs> so, again, this is something that you know, we don't know. Maybe there were bunnies. So, I mean, again, this is a situation of we don't actually know how 100% different specific pagan groups throughout Europe would have celebrated springtime and springtime observances. But when it comes to bunnies, it's very much a 17th and 18th century German custom where they came up with a story about an Easter bunny showing up to bring you treats. And it really doesn't start spreading in popularity until the 19th century when, you know, basically card companies realize that they can really cash yeah, in on this whole like thing and start printing of uh, chocolate, Christmas chocolates. The yes. Selling of candies yeah. and treats changed a lot of the way that we yeah, celebrate. Very much a 19th century. Oh, yes. Yeah. And last but not least, we're going to talk about eggs because, yes, fine, this one does have pagan roots. Sort of. However, <laughs> again, this is. It only has pagan roots if you come from a specific region of Eastern Europe. Because, yes, there are, like, decorated eggs and, like, fragments of decorated eggshells and, like, ceramic decorated eggs that date to the 5th millennium BC in, you know, what is now, like, Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, and maybe, like, Western Russia, right? And, you know, there is a a long-standing, you know, when, when you look at a lot of the symbols that survive and that people were using and continue to use, as egg decorating is still a big thing to this day, where you use wax to put symbols on the eggs and then dye them and then melt off the wax to reveal the symbols, basically. It's like... Um, like wax resist techniques. A lot of the symbols being used are, you know, definitely pre-Christian in origin. But, you know, obviously as places got Christianized, things like crosses were 
added and different Christian symbolism was also worked into these. However, for absolutely everybody else, the whole thing with eggs and Easter is directly a thing from Passover. Because again, as we talked about, there is a white egg on the Seder plate. And according to many sources, the Christian custom of Easter eggs specifically started among early Christians in what is now, you know, Mes- <sighs> so according to many sources, the Christian custom of dying eggs for Easter started among the early Christians in basically the Near East who took the egg symbolism from the Jewish tradition but used different natural dyes to stain them red in memory of the blood of Christ and his crucifixion. And, you know, if you look at a lot of, you know, a lot of churches today still will give out, you know, dyed red eggs specifically for the holiday. Um, Again, this gets commercialized and turned into like, let's dye them a million different colors once, you know, more um, more commercial dyes are available during the 19th century. And, you know, again, things like egg hunts, we don't really know. Maybe that was happening beforehand, but almost certainly we're just handing them to people as gifts. Dope. All right. So <laughs> now that my myth busting is done, now that I've I've had my little rant... Let's talk about how people actually celebrated things prior to what we would think of nowadays as an Easter celebration, which is chocolates, uh, chocolate in the shape of a bunny, chocolate in the shape of a hen, colorful eggs, colorful basket, etc. For most of, you know, like early Christianity and into the Middle Ages, it was pretty common to have very solemn religious services on Thursday, which is when the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples is supposed to take place on Friday when he was um, crucified and on Saturday while he was in the tomb. Whereas then after four days of quite solemn church services, you would have Sunday, which was a celebration with feasting and joyous hymns and Basically, you had a great big party because... I'm sorry, there's another plane overhead. I live on a flight path. And remember, as we talked about in the Lent episode, this was a time when after 40 days of abstinence, you were finally allowed to eat meat and eggs and cheese and butter and any other kind of animal products you wanted. And in a lot of cases the lord of the manor would be the one footing the bill for this feast and would be holding the feast for the servants, which, you know, partly was, like, this idea of noblesse oblige and partly this idea of hearkening back to Jesus, like, washing his disciples' feet and serving food to them to show, like, ah, yes, like, I am the lord of the manor, but, like, I will, you know, humble myself to care for others. And again, eggs were very, very important in some of the bigger celebrations, like in records um, that do survive from this time, from account books of, you know, noble houses and stuff. People would buy, you know, literally thousands of eggs for this 
So, you know, it was a big deal. And specifically in Eastern Europe, there's also the practice of taking all the food that you're going to eat on Easter to the church to be ritually blessed. And then, you know, so you put your eggs and cheese and meat and whatever else you want to eat. Oh, and your fancy Easter bread. Put it in the basket, take it to the church, that gets blessed, you get to eat it on Sunday, and it's nice blessed food. And I think we're just about out of time, but that's pretty much what an Easter celebration would have looked like. Again, just lots of feasting and, you know, some shenanigans. It's springtime. Probably going to be able to go outside, play some games, have a feast, have a good time. I'm here for it. I love Easter. Oh, it's so good. And that is really about all I've got to say about that. I think we're about done. I think I think we've crammed a lot into our into yeah. our hour long episode. And I hope that this was you know yeah. fun Happy for everyone. Happy Easter, happy belated Passover by the time this is released. I guess also happy belated Easter by the time we release this, right? Maybe. The day after. I think we're releasing it like a day after. Something like that. Regardless. We're clearly on top of it. Have have a good time. (laughs) Have a good, have a good springtime ritual of renewal and... Good things happening. Thank you for listening to the Papiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!